0: Man, it's neat to know that what we just sang about is actually happening in heaven right now. Um, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth And another said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, amen. And the four living creatures said amen and they fell down again and they worshiped, they worshiped him. And Father, we're just thankful this morning for the privilege of being able to be here and to be able to join in what's going on in heaven. Lord, we thank you for these opportunities that we have to gather as your church, to gather as your people, um, and to come together not around a person or, or a worship team, or, uh, but, but around you and around your presence and around your word. And, Father, we do, with all of our hearts this morning, we, we want to exalt you. We want you to be lifted up. And Father, we thank you that uh, whether we feel it or not, Lord, doesn't matter. The reality is that worship is happening all the time in heaven before your throne. And you have created us in such a way that, um, body, soul, and spirit, that we are able to come and worship you in spirit and in truth and join that. It's what we were made to do. And Father, we, we thank you. We thank you so much. For that privilege, for the honor that it is to come into your presence, into your throne room by faith to worship you. There is nothing better. There is nothing beyond this, Lord. There is nothing beyond giving you praise. We want to acknowledge this morning, Lord, that our songs, this is not a means to an end, this is the end of everything. That you be glorified. Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you. Grab your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 11. It's where we were this past week. Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. I'm going to jump right in, read verses 1 through 9, and then I'm going to jump over towards the end of the chapter and read a few verses there as well. Genesis chapter 11, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. And then I want you to jump over to verse 27. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milca, the daughter of Haran, and the father of Milca and Isca. Now Sarah was barren; she had no child. Now Sarah was barren, and she had no child. And let's pray one more time. Father, thanks, thanks again for today. Please open the eyes of our heart now, that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So as we've been tracking through Genesis, we're almost coming to the end of our time in Genesis here. Next week. Uh, we're going to be reading chapter 12. Mr. Matt Beachy will be bringing the word to us next week uh, from chapter 12. Um, and so you've got this transition here at the beginning of Genesis. Chapter 11 is just over and over again the story of origins, uh, this, the origin of marriage, the origin of creation, uh, the origin of sin. Um, and here this morning you see the origin uh, of, of languages. One of the things that I've loved about Genesis is how you you see these these themes uh that are carried on throughout the Bible, but you see them in like a seed form, in like just their most sim- simple seed form in the beginning. So, so for example, with Adam and Eve and marriage, you know that the woman was taken from the man. Uh, from his side and that we are the bride of Christ taken from Christ's side his death on the cross as they plunged the spear in and the two were made to become one flesh and Paul picks up on this then in Ephesians chapter 5 and teases out this this metaphor and so um, but again you see it you see it in seed form in the beginning Um, you see it with this idea of substitutionary atonement that Adam and Eve after they had sinned they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves but that would not do that God requires a blood sacrifice Uh, as a penalty for our sin and there had to be a substitute and that animal was a substitute that God killed and he made skins for Adam and Eve. Same way with Cain and Abel. Uh, Abel brought a sacrifice that was acceptable to God um, uh, and and Cain's was not because it was not a blood sacrifice and so you see this theme of substitution which obviously carries its way on throughout the Bible and of course Christ ultimately being the perfect uh, substitutionary lamb that died on our behalf, that took the wrath of God upon himself um, and died in our place so that we could have uh, eternal life and the righteousness that comes from him. And also here in, in and there's more, but in Genesis chapter 11, there's two themes um, that were, were real, just like Adam and Eve were real, just like Cain and Abel were real, just like the sacrifice was real. This, this really happened, the Tower of Babel, um, and this story that we just get into a little bit with Abraham and Sarai. Um, but, but there's two themes here in this chapter um, that I really want us to look at this morning and trace throughout. And, and what I want to talk about this morning, these two themes are Babel and barrenness. Babel and barrenness. Um, that Babel isn't just a city with a tower but it's actually a world system uh, that the Bible says that we are to hate and that we are not, not to love. So in First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, I thought we were supposed to love the world. We're supposed to love people in the world in the way that Christ loves them. We're to take the good news to them. We're to love them even for our enemies. Uh, we're to be willing to lay down our lives as Christians as Christ laid down his life for us. But when, the first, or when John talks about how we're to, to not love the world, what he's talking about is Babel. He's talking about this world system, and I'll unpack that as we go. In the same way, this idea of barrenness that we see here uh, with Sarai, or who's later going to become uh, Sarah when God change, changes her and Abram's name to Abraham and Sarah, rather than Abram and Sarai. Um, in the same way that Babel isn't just a city, um, but talks of a world system, barrenness isn't just a physical condition. It's not just a physical condition where you can't have children, but it's a condition of the heart that causes us to cry out to God, and that it seems throughout the scriptures that God is pleased to bless um, when we have this condition. And so what I wanna do this morning is just uh, walk through the text, um, show some of the big ideas about Babel and barrenness, but then also trace them through the scripture, and then I'll come back at the end and kind of just give a few uh, application points as to how we're to respond um, in light of this. So first of all, some of the marks of Babel. Here's the primary mark of Babel, okay, there's a couple, but the biggest one is self. Self. That when you think of Babel, uh, it's, they're, they're self-willed, self-exalting, and self-centered. It's all, about, it's all about self. Me, 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 me. Uh, that's what Babel is about. Um, God had told them, we looked at last week, to because we're image bearers of God, to go and fill the earth, and to subdue it and fill it, and to multiply because we bear his image, bearing his glory throughout the whole earth right away. They are not doing that. The whole uh, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. They stopped spreading out. They just settled there. And they said to one another, here's what they say, come let us. This is kind of the theme. You'll see this repeated two or three times here in in, in these brief verses. Come let us, come let us, come let us. Said he of self will. Whatever we want to do, we will do it. Come let us. Come, let us take bricks and burn them thoroughly. And this is you know, probably kind of like a new technology for them. And so they take this new technology and they use it to exalt, exalt self. Still doing the same thing today. Verse 4 then. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And then they say, and let us, again, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Is that Babel is all about self. The mark of Babel is that it seeks to exalt self. I will do what I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And it's going to be all about me. And I'm going to make a name for myself. You see the same thing then throughout the scriptures. Again, jumping all the way to to Daniel. You don't have to turn there. But in the book of Daniel, Babel has now become Babylon. Babylon. Okay, so we'll get back into this in just a second, but you know, I read the story already. God's going to come down. He's going to confuse the languages. He's going to disperse the tower. The tower is stopped, but this spirit, this idea, this attitude of self-will, has, it has now become a city. It's become a kingdom, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of, of, this, um, of this empire of Babylon that is all about self. In Daniel chapter 3, you see him making a giant uh, statue to which all people of the land are to bow down and to worship, and that's where you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, uh, you know, just for a second, everybody's bowing down, and they refuse to bow, and they stand, and they stand up, they refuse to bow to it, and it's an interesting picture, because if you picture this, and everybody's gathered, and they'll be bowing down to this statue, everybody else bows, they continue to stand, and kinda of the principle there is that if you wanna stand out, all you have to do is stand up. Just don't bow, folks. Don't bow to the spirit of the world, don't bow to the spirit of Babel. Worship Jesus, worship him, and you stand out. Then in Daniel chapter 4, and again this is kind of like, again, the epitome of what Babel, which has now become Babylon, is all about in this kingdom, is King Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, this is Daniel chapter 4, Uh, At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and he just says, he just says to himself, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Same attitude they have back in Genesis chapter 11. Now hundreds of years later, same spirit existing. And God answered King Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar is just kind of talking to himself. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules." Until you know, until you acknowledge at the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wants, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like a wild ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and I praised and honored him who lives forever. So God humbles Nebuchadnezzar just like he humbles the people at Babel here. Nebuchadnezzar finally turns his eyes to heaven, acknowledges that God is God and that he is man. And he says, And I praise and honor him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and nobody can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? God will do whatever he pleases. God is against Babel. God is against Babylon. It existed in Genesis chapter 11. It existed in the book of Daniel quite a ways later, and it still exists today. And it's going to exist until the very end when Jesus comes back and destroys it. If you guys remember, just at the end of last year when we were finishing up reading the book of Revelation, and going through a few of those chapters as a church, Revelation chapter 17. Now, not only is Babel just a, a place with a tower that God stops, and it's not just a kingdom that has endured, is now ruled by Nebuchadnezzar and then is somewhat debunked, but again, it's, this, it's a spirit, it's an ideology, it's a world system, it's an attitude with which we, um, we view life and live our lives. In Revelation chapter 17, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, "'Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute "'who is seated on many waters, "'with whom the kings of the earth "'have committed sexual immorality, "'and with the wine of whose sexual immorality "'the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. "'And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, "'and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast "'that was full of blasphemous names.'" And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a gold cup of abominations in the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. So who is this woman? What is her name? She embodies every sort of immorality and sin that God hates. Here's the name that was written on her forehead. Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs and of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Babylon isn't just a city and it wasn't just an ancient kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar ruled, but it's a world system. It's a system of the day that still exists and that God is going to destroy when he sends his son back to redeem all things. But the marks of Babel itself, folks, itself. And again, you got to understand that what they're doing here with the tower, and I don't have time to go into like all the details of this, but they're building a city, they want to make a name, but this tower, it, it, it wasn't, I mean, it's pagan, but, but there was a religious aspect to it. Like they built this tower, almost every commentator agrees that it was something like a ziggurat, if you've ever seen like the old Mayan temples that are kind of like stepped up you know, like this. I should have got you a picture, but I just thought I'd use my hands instead because that's just as good. But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but and the idea was that they were going to somehow make a stairway for the gods, that they could go up and that the gods and that the gods could come down. There's a religious aspect to this. And I want you to understand this. There's a religious aspect to Babylon, to the spirit of Babel that's still, that still exists. Another mark of it, even though at the core of it, it's all self-willed, self-centered, um, self-exalting, pleasure. Again, the great prostitute is, um, is drunk with every sort of impurity and immorality. But there's another aspect here is that it, it appears to be blessed. You have to understand this. Is that Babylon, if, if we're going to ultimately resist it and not live in it as God calls us to, and to obey First John, you know, where we do not love the world, where we do not love this system, You have to understand, though, that you're going to have to say no to something that's very popular. It's very popular. Babylon appears to be blessed. It appears to be prosperous. The great prostitute riding on the back of the beast, um, who is the personification of the spirit of Babylon, uh, she's drunk with the blood of the saints. It looks like she wins and it looks like we lose. How many of you want to be a loser? Yeah. Well, here's the thing, we follow a man who was crucified, right? And, I, and, and this is where the real rub comes in, where I, I really want us to understand why this matters for us as a church, is because guys, the, the spirit of this age, and of Babylon, and of this world, um, we are so used to, in this country, uh, being outwardly victorious. Like, even, even still now, like, like we can... We can have our church services, and we can meet, and we can promote things openly, Um, and you know we do have rights, and I'm not opposed to you know standing up for those rights, as you know, as long as it's part of the Constitution. I I think we should you know stand up for those things. That's that's fine, but you got to understand that that in the end, though, our number one allegiance is to a man that for a time looked like a total loser. Jesus. He was crucified. Babylon won, it seemed. All the disciples were dispersed and they, they, they went away and it looked like what they'd given their lives to had failed. And that experience, what I want to say is that experience is, is going to be a reality for every single person who wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There will be times in your life when it looks like you're a failure, when it looks like you're a fool. When the world doesn't applaud you, when the world doesn't think that you're awesome or want to hear, and doesn't want to hear what you have to say. And it's in those moments that we need to decide whether or not we're going to jump on the back of the beast and the prostitute and ride around on it, or whether we're going to be willing to be trampled by it and lay down our lives, even to the point of death. So, marks of Babylon, it's all about self. Number two, it, it will appear to be blessed. There's a sense in which it looks like it's victorious. But then the third mark of Babylon is that God will always, always, always oppose it, and it will always, always, always ultimately fail. Will ultimately fail. So God comes down here, and again, getting back into the text here in Genesis chapter 11. They say, come let us, come let us, come let us. And we're going to build this thing that goes up to the heavens. And then verse 5, don't, don't, I, I, there, there is sarcasm in the Bible, okay? There is. And here's some of it. Verse 5, they're building this great tower. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. It's this great thing. The Lord's. Oh, what is. Now, he, he, he knew, again, this is anthropomorphic language here. You know, God is spirit, he, He's everywhere and He knows everything. Verse six, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And and, and that verse there, that is not in any way spoken as like a rival who's somehow jealous and needs to, uh, you know, um, take him out because he's, you know, they they might somehow rival his glory, but this is spoken as a creator um, who's going to fulfill the intentions of his will. Verse seven, and again, notice the, the language of the play on words where they said, come let us, come let us, come let us. Verse seven, God says, come let us. Come let us go down. This is what you're going to do? Oh, this is what you're going to do? Going to make a tower? Going to make a name? Going to make a city? Well, let me show you what I'm going to do. Come let us go down. And we'll confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they they left off building the city. That again the mark of babylon is that even though it looks victorious for a time it will in the end ultimately always be destroyed same thing happened with nebuchadnezzar where god you know again had, had given him this kingdom he raises up and he tears down whoever he wants he made him crazy for seven years and then he restored him after a period of time until nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that heaven ruled again in the book of revelation i read from chapter 17 earlier this is from chapter 18 the very next chapter John says, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory and he called out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Again, notice how all of the earth here it seems, has partaken in Babylon, this great prostitute in some way. But God is going to destroy it. Then I heard the voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. See, folks, this is why I'm talking about this this morning is because the call here is to God's people to come out of her. The implication being that God's people have partaken with her. Come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And again, I think this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 11, where we see again the seed form of the spirit of Babylon now at the end in Revelation. But the seed form was, we're going to make a tower to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. And God says here in Revelation 18, verse 5, No, her sins are heaped as high as the heavens. That will be her testimony, is that she's wicked. And God will ultimately destroy it. Kings of the earth are going to stand far off and weep over Babylon. The destruction of Babylon makes them sad. Revelation chapter 18 verse 10 says, They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her, because no one can buy cargo anymore. We as God's people are not to weep over Babylon. We're to know that Babylon, in the end, needs to be destroyed because it is unrighteous. Our God is righteous; He is holy, and He is opposed to wickedness. And we are to stand against it. We are to not love the world. And again, then back in Revelation chapter eleven, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter eleven, you see this little summary verse um, that Moses, presumably the writer of the book of Genesis. Um, says here in verse 9, he says, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and the name Babel means confusion. And from the, there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole of the whole earth. They were confused. It's the other mark of Babel. It will end in confusion. What were they confused about? They were confused about who they were and who God was. And it's the same thing we face today, folks. And again, I know we've been seeing this as we've been reading through the book of Genesis. This is what I love about just reading through the Bible, steadily plodding away, is you see these themes and they just get rubbed down into you over and over and over. He is God and we are not. Jesus is not just our buddy. He's not just our homeboy. He's our savior. He's our creator. He is our sovereign Lord and King. And we are to acknowledge him as that, I don't know if you guys have heard just lately, I guess um, NASA put another um, rover, land rover thing on, on Mars. Did you hear about this? I guess we've, we've done this before, done it three or four times before, but then they keep, you know, they give out eventually. And so we landed a new one on Mars. And, you know, there's a sense in which from a certain earthly perspective, that's kind of cool, Right? I mean, I don't, you know, Mars is out there a little ways. Maybe not. But uh, Dorothy, can you throw that one picture up there? But it all depends on how you look at it. You know, I I was listening to a few interviews and articles that everybody's all excited, you know, that now this new rover we got, it's going to last longer. We're going to explore more about Mars. But this is a picture. (laughs) This is a picture taken in 1990 from the Hubble telescope, uh, still inside our Milky Way galaxy, which is a cluster of billions of stars. And I don't know if you can see it. Can you see that little dot? Do you see it? That's, a, that's Earth. Now, I, I don't have my little laser pointer here this morning, but if I was going to point to Mars, you can't really see Mars, but Mars would be like that far away from the little dot. So again, there's a sense in which, is it cool that we put a rover on Mars? O- okay. We got a ways to go. Right? We got a ways to go. But when you see things from above, <laughs> you remember how small, how small we are. Um, it should cause us to fear and tremble. And I'll talk about this more. I want to go on here talking about barrenness, but guys, let's not live our lives through the lens of Babylon. <laughs> because if we do. And even if we partake in some form, of for, some form of victory, in the end, we are self-deceived. Because we are really, 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 really tiny. And God alone is God and deserves to be worshipped. Secondly, this idea of barrenness. Okay, so in the, you know, you've got this transition here, you've got this, this description of Babel. And again, I'm kind of showing you how this idea runs throughout the scriptures. Then you have this genealogy. Genealogies are a really big deal. Have you guys been reading the genealogies? Have you been reading through Genesis, huh? Or do you skip them? Don't lie, you're in church. So you're like, what's up with the genealogies? Like they get a lot of press, right? Like they actually get a lot of space in the Bible. Well, here's the deal, okay? The careful reader, again, we're we're to be following these, these themes, that go throughout the Bible, this is biblical theology, is if you remember, back when everything went bad in Genesis chapter 3, um, God, in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin, even after the fall, he gives that initial promise in Genesis 3.15. Remember, theologians call it the Proto-Evangelion. It's the, like the prototype, the, pr- the first preaching of the gospel, <clears throat> talking about this one that would come and destroy the serpent. Genesis 3.15 says to the woman i will put enmity between you and between the woman i'm sorry he's saying this to the serpent i will put enmity between you and between the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel this is the first explicit reference although we don't you know know the fullness of it till later as we read the rest of the story of jesus coming he's going to crush the head of the serpent But again, he's referred to here as the seed of the woman. So, now you've got all these genealogies. If you're looking for this hope, if you're looking for this serpent crusher that's going to come and redeem the mess that has happened, you're looking at these genealogies and going, is it this one? Is it this one? Is it this one? Is it going to be Cain? He was the first born to Adam. Nope, wasn't Cain. Is it going to be Abel? Nope, Cain killed Abel. Is it going to be Enoch? Enoch walked with God. Nope, God took him, and he was no more. Is it going to be Noah? His dad prophesied about him that he was going to bring rest to the land. Nope, it's not Noah. And so you're reading these genealogies, okay, but then you come here to the end of the genealogies in Genesis verse 27, and it it kind of zeroes in on Terah's family and Abram. Okay, but again, you're looking for this seed, okay, that's coming, this, this rescuer. You'd be looking for this, But then you come to verse 30, and it speaks of Sarai, Abram's wife, and for the first time it's explicitly mentioned that a woman is barren, that she cannot have kids. So you're looking for the kid, you're looking for the seed, you're looking for the offspring. Is it this one, is it this one, is it this one? But then you come to this part of it, and you would go, Sarah, and she was barren, she had no child. Well, we know it's not here, Right? Not here. We've been looking and we haven't found it so far, but you know there was at least a little bit of hope, but not here. Here it's barren. Nothing here, but this is exactly where it's going to come from. This is exactly where God is going to begin to work. And he's going to bless them. And folks, it's right precisely in that place where we don't expect God to move, where we think that there's absolutely no hope, that there's hope. See, what I want for us to get this morning, and again, I just want to explain this first of all and then appeal for it more at the end, but guys, I want us to embrace barrenness. I want us to embrace not having anything to offer, thinking that there's no hope, because when we actually think that there's no hope, when we understand our total inability, there's nothing that we can do. And again, you, you, you can't fake this. It's like when people try to fake humility. Have you ever seen somebody who's not really humble but they want to act humble? Do you know what I mean? And maybe they just kind of talk quieter because I'm so humble. I'm so humble. It's not about me. I'm so humble. I'm talking quiet. I don't know. But <laughs> like you, you, you can't fake it. Do you know what I mean? You can't, fa- you can't fake barrenness. You can't fake getting to the place where you, that you come to that, that I believe that, that God actually brings you to, where you understand that there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can do. You are barren. Again, I'll, that's what I want to tell you this morning. We are barren. We are. But that's a good thing, and I want us to embrace it. I don't want us, I don't want us to go around living self-deceived lives like the people of Babel. The people of Babel, they were also barren. But they were deceived, and they thought that they weren't. Barrenness. Seven women, I'm holding on five, seven, seven, I'm good at math, seven women uh, in the Bible speak of this barren, this idea of barrenness that I want to point out to you real quick. They're very much tied to the lineage of Jesus, Okay? Especially the first three, Sarai is the first one here, later on becomes becomes Sarah. They have, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac gets married to Rebekah. Rebekah is also barren. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 25. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean. Uh, of Padad Aram the sister uh, of Laban the Aramian to his wife and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah conceived Rebekah was barren but then Isaac prays and she conceives um, Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau If you guys know the story Jacob is the seed to whom the promise is given Okay, he ends up having two wives. Again, polygamy is never a practice that is is ever condoned in the Bible. But you do see it. Um, but it's never. But it's never condoned. Uh, but he has two wives, uh, Rachel and Leah. Rachel is going to be the one to whom the the promise comes. Um, Genesis chapter thirty, it says uh, uh, Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, and she envied her sister Leah. She said to Jacob, give me children or I die. It's great longing in her heart to be able to bear children. In verse 22 of chapter 30, and God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Again, a woman that's barren cries out to the Lord. God answers the prayer. The the, the fourth woman that you see that's barren in the scriptures is Samson's mother. We don't know her name. We don't know her name, but in Judges chapter 13, it says, there was a certain man of Zorob of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, she had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Here she's not crying out, but she's barren. There's absolutely no hope. God sovereignly, in his sovereign, free, unexplainable, unmerited grace, steps in and gives life where there was none, just like he does with Sarai here. The next one, one of my favorite ones in the Bible, because she has the same name as my wife, Hannah, 1 Samuel, uh, chapters 1 and 2. Again, she is one of two wives uh, um, to this man, uh, Elkanah, Elkanah. First Samuel chapter 1 verse 2 says, And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. She was barren. We don't have time to go into all this, but if you guys know this story, is that year after year they would go up uh, to Shiloh to offer sacrifices. Um, it was just part of their worship to the Lord. And year after year, Hannah would go up and she would cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. For him to give her, to give her children. And uh, finally, the, the, there's this one year where she goes up, she's crying out to the Lord, and she's just pouring out her soul to the Lord. And it says her lips are moving, but the, you, you couldn't hear any words. You ever been there? And she's crying out to the Lord, and Eli, the religious leader, the priest, he looks at her, and he doesn't understand this crying out, and he thinks that she's drunk. He says, woman, put away your drunkenness. And she goes, I'm not drunk. I'm not drunk, my Lord, but I have... Um, but I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord and asking that he would grant me a child. And again, in, in her time with the Lord there, she committed to the Lord that if he would just give her a child that she was going to give him back, back to him. And the Lord does eventually open her womb. She has Samuel. And so Samuel is, is this uh, important figure in kind of the, the line of, of Old Testament history. He's the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, And so he kind of stands at this transition period in Israel's history, but it all happened because of this barren woman who was crying out to God, and brought that and brought that about as part of God's sovereign plan. The sixth one that you see is actually in the New Testament, but again, before Jesus comes, is Elizabeth, Zachariah's Zachariah's wife. in Luke chapter 1, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments of the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were now advanced in years. And you guys know this story, is that Zechariah is a priest, he's in the temple, and he's you know doing the incense and all the stuff that the, um, that the priest would do in the temple. And an angel appears to him, says that he's going to have a son, but Zechariah doubts and, you know, the angel says, uh, I'm an angel. I've come from the throne of God. I've come to give you this good news, and now you're going to doubt it. He says, you shall be mute until your son is born. So Zechariah comes out of the temple, and he can't talk. And then when John the Baptist, their son, is finally born, he's able to speak, and he rejoices in God. And then, and I do think that there's something to this. Again, you have to be careful with, with numerology and numbers and stuff in the Bible because it can get really weird really quick But I do think there's something to this is that those are the first six that are barren but then the seventh one that is barren but not barren in the typical way is Mary. And she's not barren in the sense that she can't have kids but she doesn't even have a husband. In some ways she's more barren. And again, the seventh child to then be born um, tracing this theme of barrenness through the Bible is to Mary and it's Jesus. Seven, God's perfect number. Here he comes. Here's now the seed that we were looking for. Tied to this lineage of barrenness. And again, even with Mary, doesn't even have a husband. Total miracle. And when the angel appears to Mary and says that she's going to have, have a child, uh, you know, Mary just asks a few clarifying questions, which any of us would. And she goes to visit uh, her, her uh, cousin Elizabeth, who just talked about, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, and then Mary breaks out in song when she goes and visits um, Elizabeth. And I want, I want you to listen to what she, what she says, okay? This is called the Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat, spontaneous song of her heart. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me Blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That sound familiar? Like Babel, scattering. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Folks, all that to say, it's good to be barren. It's good to be barren. I want us to be barren we are barren i want us to acknowledge that we're barren i want us to acknowledge that what we need god to do in our lives in our church in our community and in our nation we cannot do but we can call upon the one who can do it amen first corinthians chapter 1 paul writing to the corinthian church They were pretty cocky. They were a pretty cocky church. They thought a lot of themselves. Paul uh, never one to hold back from tearing down pride wherever he sees it. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, now he's talking specifically to them, I mean, imagine you're, you're a Corinthian, sitting in the Corinthian church, and you're hearing this letter being read for the first time. It says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and is despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you are in Christ this morning, if you know Jesus as your Savior, He didn't save you because He needed you in all of your awesomeness to make much of Him. He saved each one of us. Because we are just like the Corinthian church. We're not much. And then verse 30, he tops it off and he says, and because of him, God, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ. It's because of what God has done that you are in Christ. That God is the one that has opened up your heart and done a miracle in your heart to believe in him and to trust him. Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification in sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What are you boasting in this morning? Where's your boast been this past week? I hope it's been in Jesus. Jesus, again, made this clear. Didn't necessarily use the language of, of, of barrenness, but it's the same idea, that of fruitfulness or no fruit. John chapter 15, he says, I am the, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that, he may, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus wants to remind us that we are barren. But if we embrace barrenness, this type of barrenness leads to fruitfulness for his honor and for his glory. Makes sense? See you with me? You understand? Babel, Babylon, and barrenness. A couple of takeaways. Uh, These are pretty pretty obvious. Um, But number one, as I've already said, I want us to embrace barrenness. I want us to embrace... Barrenness. What does that look like? I want us to pray and I want us to believe. I want us to cry out to God. I want us to begin to seek the Lord like some of these women that I talked about sought the Lord. Again, you you, you can't you can't fake this. You can't you can't just stir it up. But I'm convinced that with the Lord's help, he he wants to do this in us, and he wants to take us there, and I believe he is taking us there. It is a good thing to recognize your barrenness. It is a good thing to be on your knees, to be on your face, to have your lips moving, but nothing coming out. When's the last time you prayed like that? When's the last time you prayed like that? And again, I know maybe you can't manufacture this. I don't want to try to manufacture it. But are we desperate for God to birth something in us that only He can do? Are we willing to have the same attitude as, uh, which one was it, Rebecca or Rachel? Rachel, give me children or I die. God birthed something in me. Folks, throughout throughout history, wherever there has been a move of God's spirit in an extraordinary way, God is always moving. God is always moving. He's always doing his thing. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. Even right now in your life and around us, he's doing a thousand things that we don't see because he's faithful all the time. But throughout history, wherever there's been a wave of God's spirit that, you know, and people call it revival or spiritual awakening or people coming to the Lord, it has almost always been preceded by a group of people that finally understand just how barren they really are. And that put aside all of their means and all of their wisdom and all the things that they can produce, and they just begin to call upon him. And I want this for us. Our church needs this. Our community needs this. One of the biggest things, if I can just share a little something, some on my heart. Guys, our schools need this. Our kids need this. Amen? Yeah, yeah and I, I, I've said this before, but and, and, and there's, there's some truth to it, but like, guys, you, you've heard the statistics of, you know, kids that grow up in church, and you know, like, I don't know what it is statistics um mark twain said there's there's lied good, there's lies really bad lies and statistics so for what it's worth statistics you know i don't put a whole lot of weight in them but they're always changing but you know like 70 80 percent of kids that grow up in church you say when they when they go to college whatever they walk away from the faith and everybody's like we need to teach them more apologetics we need to teach them why they can know that the bible's true i am totally all for that and that definitely plays a role but but here's the deal The reason kids are leaving their faith at a mass rate when they become adults isn't just because we haven't taught them enough apologetics. It's because they have heard about this God who's supernatural. They've heard about this God who can save. They've heard about this God who does mighty, mighty things, but they've grown up then in a church that expects absolutely nothing. And that doesn't call out to him, that doesn't call upon him, doesn't call upon the name of the Lord, but runs to all of our own resources and our own wisdom and our own finances and whatever we can produce. And they don't see the hand of God at work in their lives growing up. And so this whole thing just seems like a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. But if we're trying to do the work of the kingdom of God with the attitude of Babylon... And that's exactly what we're going to get. It's kids who walk away. I don't want kids to walk away. My kids or anyone else, I want my kids to know. I want them to know this God. I want them to know this Savior. I want them to know this Jesus. I want them to know the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what, it's what Highland High School needs. It's what Garraway needs. It's what West Holmes needs. Jesus Christ is Lord of those places. Whether people want to acknowledge it or not, just like the people of Babel didn't want to acknowledge him, Jesus is Lord over those schools. But it's up to the people of God to understand that we need him to birth something in us. Jesus took 11 men who were barren. 12, Judas, he falls away. Takes 11 men who were barren. And after he ascends back up into heaven after his death, burial, and resurrection, says these all with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. They knew that they were barren. They devoted themselves to prayer. And then on the day of Pentecost, a rushing mighty wind came. And God did what only God can do. That's what we need. It's what we need. We don't need anything else. We need this. We need spiritual awakening. And I want us to be hungry for it. you got to understand that picture, I love that picture of Hannah in the Old Testament. On her knees, lips are moving, but no words are coming out. And Eli, who's the priest, who's supposed to be the religious leader, who's supposed to know something about what it means to pray. But he doesn't recognize this. This is unfamiliar. This, this type of crying out is unfamiliar to him. This type of crying out is unfamiliar to the religious establishment. You may have grown up in church your whole life, well, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? We just get some principles from God's word, and you know, we just kind of do the best we can with them and we go forward and we just we just we just make it happen. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes supernaturally in the power of the Holy Spirit, when we begin to cry out to him and call upon him, power. Secondly, just these two ideas of babble and barrenness, which one best represents the condition of your heart this morning? Which one most represents the condition of your heart? Self? Me, 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 me. I want to say this just because you can't stop me. Um, I, I uh, Jesus has given us everything He needs through His Spirit and His Word, and us in prayer, us calling upon Him, in order for us to grow in Christ's likeness. You are not really going to grow. Um, ultimately, you're, you're not ultimately going to grow in Christ's likeness. By looking inward. By looking inward. And for some of you, this will land, you'll know what I'm talking about. Others of you might not have any idea. Good. I hope you don't have any idea. Put away the stinking Enneagram stuff, put away the Enneagram numbers. Like your personality. Type. I mean, I'm, here, well, I'm an eight with a seven wing and I'm a six with a five wing. And me, 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 me. Who cares? Jesus didn't need an Enneagram number. Who cares? You need to get your eyes off yourself and get them on Jesus. It's by beholding him that we are transformed from glory to glory to ever increasing glory. Which one most represents the condition of your heart? Um, the reason why there's hope is because Jesus came. He did the exact opposite of what of what the people did at the Tower of Babel. Uh, he didn't assert his will, even though he could have. He said, "Father, not my will, but yours be done." And he went to the cross. I want to tell you this morning that even though we live in the midst of Babylon there is hope. Dorothy, can you put that picture back up there one more time of the little dot? Um, again, that was taken from the Voyager, Voyager telescope, whatever, um, from deep space in 1990. Uh, Carl Sagan, not a Christian, American scientist, worked heavily with NASA throughout his career, as far as I know, went to, the, went to his grave um, not confessing Christ. But he gave a talk at Uh, Cornell University in 1994 and I want you to listen to this okay he says we succeeded in taking that picture he was talking about this picture from deep space and if you look at it you see a lot that's home that's us On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on our Remote dust suspended in a sunbeam. Since the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena, think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. And he says, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, and the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this little point in pale light. I said, he's not a Christian at all, but up until this point, I'm like, all right. then he says this, He goes on, he says, Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, listen, there is no hint that help will come from somewhere else to save us from ourselves. It is up to us. Isn't that sad? Help has come. His name is Jesus. It is not up to us. It's the spirit of Babylon that causes us to say such things. By the way, there's a part of me when you read this, you kind of like, ah, you feel bad for Carl Sagan. And, and, and I do, you like, it's sad. It is sad. But th- there's another sense in which you have to understand, guys. This is what the Bible says. This is what our sin does. It's not that Carl Sagan or anyone else doesn't know that there's a God, but Romans chapter one says, they know the truth about God, every man does, but we suppress it. We suppress it in unrighteousness. But anyway, worship team, you can come up and we'll we'll close. But guys, I just want to say that, again, that last little quote, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves, it is up to us. Not true, (laughs) amen, not true. Jesus Christ came. And just like God came down to look at what Babel was doing, Jesus Christ humbled himself and came down to earth. Who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a man and the nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he rose again on the third day. And it's because of him that we have, that we have hope. I want us to embrace barrenness, and it's one other thing as we close here and we sing. Um, if you're here this morning and you feel like you're just especially in a season of barrenness, a season where you, uh, you, you're finally recognizing that there's nothing you can do, but it's hurt. It, it hurts, and it's painful, and you want God to change something in your life, but you understand that you're powerless to do so. I just want to say there's hope, and secondly, I'd really like to pray for you this morning. And so as we sing, you guys stand with me. You can stand right now. Stand and we sing. Uh, I'm going to be at the back. And if anybody wants, wants prayer, please come back. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for all that you're doing. Pray that you would help us even now, Lord, as we sing. Help us to embrace barrenness for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.